Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Welcome to episode six, The Hunt for Ted. On today's episode, we will discuss the aftermath of the Lake Sammamish disappearances. Ted Bundy just could not fucking control himself and abducted two women and gave his name to people who escaped. So the police are on that motherfucking ass. And let me tell you, mm, chef's kiss, it's juicy, it's good. Liz doesn't know what to do. She figures it out at some point, but it's a it's a struggle. But let's be kind to Liz because she's suffering from alcoholism. Please remember, trigger warning for sexual assault, gratuitous violence, necrophilia, anything can apply when discussing Ted Bundy. So please keep that in mind. I love you very much. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. When it became clear that this man dressed in all white, with his arm in a sling, who approached countless women on college campuses all over Washington, was also the last person seen with both Janice Ott and Denise Naslin before they disappeared, shit hit the fan. After the double disappearances of Janice and Denise, investigators organized massive ground and air searches. They found nothing. Police scuba divers even dragged the bottom of Lake Sammamish, but also found nothing. Unfortunately, the police were left yet again with no physical evidence. But they did have one thing to go off. This dumbass used his real name, Ted. He even pointed out his Volkswagen to some of his would-be victims. And they went right to the police and were like, yeah, he said his name was Ted. And he showed me his Volkswagen. Like, (laughs) Like, okay. Kevin Sullivan writes, It's possible he used his real name to cover his actions in case he was seen by someone he knew. He had come to the lake a week earlier when a much smaller crowd was there and ran into some friends and out of politeness stopped and had a beer with them. It would raise suspicions if he was in the middle of abducting a girl and someone he knew saw him and called him by his real name. By the end of the week, that new hot girl, that new it girl was the Ted case. The media could not get enough of it, which finally... It only took eight missing women disappearing at the rate of one a month for someone to sound the alarm. Even though the town of Issaquah had jurisdiction over the double disappearances, they lacked the manpower to handle such a monumental case. And thank fuck they realized this and didn't let their egos get in the way. Consequently, they turned the investigation over to the King County authorities. And up at bat, newly assigned to the homicide division of the King County Police Department was Robert Keppel. Pew, 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 pew. Robert Keppel, let me just tell you, is the fucking homie. His book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer, he shades Ted Bundy every chance he get, which is great. He also calls Ted Bundy his nemesis, which is is amazing. And he's just a down bitch. He calls out other police officers or investigators who impeded his investigation. He shades the FBI. This bitch is like, I'm writing my fucking book. I helped find the son of a bitch. And you don't have to like me, but you got to respect my fucking grind and my fucking work. And I was like, damn straight. Damn straight, Robert Keppel. If you're listening, I love you. And please come on the podcast. Dr. Keppel says in his book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer, the Ted case officially started on the following Tuesday, July 16th. It began when the Issaquah City Police Chief and his detective, both of whom were wearing long, confused faces, walked into the offices of our homicide robbery unit of the King County Police Department. They told us about these two young women who had disappeared from the same park on the same sunny Sunday and asked for our assistance. They wanted us to take over the case. Their own detective would help us in any way possible because they didn't have the human or physical resources to investigate the mountains of leads that had begun to pile up surrounding the two disappearances. The case was simply too big for a small municipal department. With media coverage intensifying from July 15th and continuing for the next two months, our investigation collapsed under the volume of unsolicited tips and head sightings because we had no way to manage the information that was suddenly pouring in. We were receiving as many as 200 calls a day about men matching the description of the Lake Sam Ted. Far too many for one detective to handle, especially the rookie who had been in the unit for only a week. Each day, the stack on my desk would get higher. 
the backlog of calls was so huge that Denise Naslin herself could have called in and told us she was fine and we wouldn't have found the message for a week. We didn't know where to begin chasing leads. Moreover, because of the volume, we couldn't separate the truly valuable phone tips from the phantom leads that were impossible to verify. One message was say that Denise Naslin was seen on a train in Sacramento, California. And at the very same time, another message would report that she was waiting for a bus in downtown Seattle. Which one should we have chosen to investigate? Liz Kendall says, On Wednesday the 17th, the morning paper reported that two young women had disappeared from Lake Sammamish State Park on Sunday. The police were asking anyone with information about the two women to contact them. Within a few days, the papers reported that several witnesses had overheard Janice Ott talking to a man who had his arm in a sling. He was described as a smooth talker, possibly with a British accent, wearing expensive-looking tennis clothes. He had asked her to put a sailboat on top of his car. She was last seen pushing her bicycle toward the parking lot, chatting with the man who had introduced himself as Ted. The car was described as a bronze or metallic colored Volkswagen. Pictures of the women were in the papers. They were young and attractive and both had hair, just like the two women who disappeared earlier from the university district. In a phone call, I told Ted what I read in the papers. He was back on his feet and at work. He wanted to know everything I heard. I told him, they said he asked the first woman to help him put a sailboat on top of his VW and that his name was Ted. I guess Ted's going to be a hot name for a while. Yeah, he joked. And I guess it's a good thing the guy didn't ask for help with a rubber raft. Liz, mama, come on. Like, his name is Ted. Fucking British accent sounding motherfucker. A Volkswagen dressing in, like, ma'am. There's a picture of Ted Bundy in her book, The Phantom Prince, dressed in all whites in front of a motherfucking Volkswagen. And I'm like, ma'am, how did you not put this together? Could not have been me. I would have been like, "Mm, nigga, you going to jail today? You better guard that ass because you go into motherfucking prison fucking around with me trying to be a goddamn serial killer. No. But when you in love, apparently you believe what you want to believe, even if that means you fucking necrophiliac and you don't know it. Detective Bob Keppel gathered all of the eyewitness identification of this dumbass who called himself Ted, abducting women, gave it to a police artist and got a composite sketch. The result was a roughly generalized drawing of a bushy-haired, high-cheeked man with straight and unremarkable features. One witness was even hypnotized to see if she could remember anything more. A license plate on the Volkswagen, a dent, anything. Unfortunately, it did not work. And it was all guesswork because guess what? Without bodies, without evidence of sexual assault or homicide, even clothing a hair of these women, the detectives were left with their dicks in their hands. <laughs> and detectives were left with the tedious chore of tracking down Volkswagen drivers named Ted. The state of motor vehicle registration computer spilled out nearly 3,000 names. And even then, the police couldn't really be sure that this person's name was actually Ted. Like, I also wouldn't really believe that this dumbass gave his real name, but he did because... Ted Bundy is a stupid piece of shit. He's not that smart, no matter what people say. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Keppel says, When we questioned witnesses, it became obvious that the stranger had approached one woman after another all afternoon. Denise Naslin was the last. The stranger known only as Ted had taken two victims from Lake Sammamish that day. Five had escaped. Each woman who walked away from Ted escaped because they noticed something vaguely dangerous about the man who suddenly appeared out of nowhere asking for help. One woman was reluctant to go to a stranger's house, another wary at being followed and approached by a stranger, and another suspicious about the nervous young man who spoke rapidly and seemed very intent on her getting into his car. These women picked up subtle signals that Ted Bundy was sending. When questioned, they said that he seemed intent on what he was after and was uncomfortably nervous. Furthermore, they said he had spoken rapidly as if he were reading a script and acted as if he had a hidden agenda. Two of these five women who escaped, unfortunately later became severely psychological traumatized when the truth about Ted came out at the thought that they could have been a murder victim, which I mean, yeah, that would fuck me up too to be like, oh shit, I literally was almost serial killed by Ted Bundy, a fucking necrophiliac. I hope they got therapy. So Bob Keppel and his partner, Roger Dunn, despite feeling overwhelmed, and remember again, this is his first week in the homicide unit, his first week. 
And his first case is the fucking double abduction homicide, a Ted Bundy case, just lands onto his lap. Okay, like work, bitch. So they decided, you know, we're overwhelmed. We're having a hard time getting at this by ourselves. Let's crowdsource for any leads. And these detectives, they knew that several news stations were at the lake that day filming because it was like a fucking record number of park goers, over 40,000 people. And so the detectives requested film footage from these news stations in hopes of maybe seeing this Ted person, maybe seeing the victims, maybe seeing Ted with the victims. It was a long shot, but they, you know, decided to try it. Bob Keppel says, we asked to view their film footage. Of course it wasn't easy. When station managers found out about our request, they just had to make it into a major production. We could only review their tapes if they were allowed to videotape us looking at them. Naturally, they had reviewed the footage before we arrived and told us they didn't see anything of value. Well, their view of an investigation was different from ours. When we saw the footage, we realized that the park really was a draw for young women with long hair parted in the middle. We didn't see Ted Bundy, the victims, or the women who were approached, but we did pick up an extremely valuable lead in the news footage. Other people taking photographs. So with this new bit of information, the police encouraged the general public to mail or drop off any photographs taken that day at the lake to the police station. Bob says, the news media had kindly asked the park goers to send us their negatives or film that they had taken at the park that day. We agreed to process and return any film sent to us. After sifting through several hundred photos, the strategy paid off. One particular black and white photo was taken of the area around the very tree under which a witness saw the metallic brown Volkswagen. The picture was of several parked police cars with officers in the background confronting a group of outlaw bikers from the motorcycle gang called the Jackals. Okay. The police vehicles prevented any parked cars from leaving the parking lot and wedged in by the police was a light-colored Volkswagen Bug with its driver behind the wheel. The license plate was obscured from view by a police car, but the ski rack on the rear of the car was clearly visible. Had we ever attempted to introduce this photo as evidence, a court would have probably thrown the photo right out because we couldn't make out who was behind the wheel or the license plate. But in our minds, it wasn't much doubt. It was Ted. And this photo is on the Instagram. Check it out. Yeah, it's, you can't see who, it's like the back of someone's head. So you can't really see who's in the car. And there's no way of knowing whether there's like, you know, Janice or Denise are in the passenger seat. Maybe it's when he arrived at the park between murders or the first time. I also could not find like what time this photo was taken. And we don't even really know if it's Ted Bundy, but it probably is Ted Bundy. So Bob Keppel is what some would call a good cop, and he has, um, let's call it disdain for those who we would call bad cops. Bob Keppel says, in spite of witness testimony, many of our colleagues from other jurisdictions with similar cases of their own were for some reason still very dubious to believe the cases were connected. Free thought that included consideration of all the possibilities was not part of their crime-solving methodology. Their work was slow and unproductive. Their lack of motivation to do anything on these cases and their reluctance to believe that they even had a murder on their hands stymied me and my partner's progress. Drag them, Bob Keppel. Annihilate them in their careers. Fucking what? What? He said their work was slow and unproductive. Read them. Read them to filth in their careers. They shouldn't be fucking doing this if they have no desire to solve a cases. Why are you a fucking homicide detective if you're not going to look into every lead, bitch? The fuck? You just want that pension? You like that union? Mm. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Find a POC and donate to them. One lead that excited police was a prisoner who was recently released from the state penitentiary. This man apparently wore his hair in a ponytail, grew pot in his backyard, and was living in the Issaquah Hills. Honestly, probably trying to just live his life. He just got out of fucking prison. His hair is long. <laughs> like the fact that it's noted that he wore his hair in a ponytail, is that a crime? Is that a crime? Is it a crime? But also remember, this Ted person, you know, with the arm in the sling, his hair wasn't long enough to be gathered in a ponytail. So leave this man alone. Since they know that he, you know, grew pot in his backyard, it makes me think that the police fucking raided him and probably took his shit, which is annoying. Like, let him be. I don't know what he was in prison for. 
I'm not trying to defend this man who has a ponytail and is growing a pot because maybe he's trash, but leave him alone. Just let him be. Ugh. The theory that the disappearances were related to the position of the moon actually began to gain some traction, even with some of the officers. If you were a man named Ted living in Washington state, your life got fucking rocked. If your name was Ted and you drove a fucking Volkswagen, forget about it. Forget about it. You're done. You're done. So one Ted, in quotes, who happened to own a bright orange VW Bug, even though he was way too young to fit the description of the Lake Sam Ted, suddenly couldn't reach his new girlfriend on the phone. Another state employee was constantly, playfully, and slightly nervously teased by his coworkers about being the Lake Sam Ted. Hundreds of men named Ted were brought in for questioning by the police. Women were seeing Ted lookalikes wherever they went. One woman ran screaming from a man who bumped his VW up the curb in the university district because <laughs> this bitch couldn't drive. I mean, I honestly would have ran screaming too. Another woman reported a man with his arm in a sling who tried to pick her up at a department store downtown. When she refused, he slipped his arm out of the sling and drove off. The two women from Ellensburg, who were approached outside of the library right before Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared, read the newspaper articles about this Lake Sam, you know, Ted, and finally brought their stories to the police and said, hey, there was this man outside of the library dropping all sorts of books and shit with his arm in a sling. We should talk about it. This happened right before Susan disappeared. And the police were like, oh shit. A bartender at the Flame Tavern also had her memory jogged and told the police of a Ted lookalike buying a beer the night Brenda Ball disappeared. Bob Keppel says, it was not a great time to be a VW owner in Seattle. We pulled vehicles over more than once, prompting owners to carry the business card of the officer who had previously interrupted their day. We also checked out every Ted suspect by showing a photograph of each one to a select few of the Lake Sammamish witnesses. This turned out to be unproductive. Liz said, Janice Ott's family offered a reward for the return of her bicycle. The newspapers were full of speculation, not only about a possible connection with the disappearances from the university district, but about reports that as many as seven other women had vanished from the Northwest since the beginning of the year. The newspapers printed pictures of the women. They were all young and attractive with long hair. So by the end of July 1974, none of the leads manifested into anything that the police could use. Major Nick Mackey made another appeal to the public, urging the abductor or abductors to do some deep soul searching and turn themselves in, which, I mean, you laugh, but Ed Kemper turned himself in. So, you know, it's worth a shot. The Seattle Post-Intelligence, a newspaper at the time, offered $5,000, which in today's money is a little over $26,000, for any information that could lead to a conviction. Oh boy, so now Liz, it appears that the gears are finally starting to click and she's like, oh shit. I should maybe look into if Ted is possibly like the Seattle Ted in quotes. In her book, The Phantom Prince, I'm just going to read you an excerpt of this wild ride because I could summarize it, but it would leave out a lot of good details and juicy things. So buckle up. And the fact that she just recalls these events so vividly when they occurred in 1974, but she wrote this in 1981 is just pretty fucking great. Liz writes, on Monday afternoon, July 22nd, I had coffee with one of the men I worked with. As we were walking back, he pulled a newspaper clipping from his pocket and handed it to me. Don't you think this looks like someone you know? The fact that he took the time to cut it out, have it in his pocket and be like, oh, wait, is this your man? She says, the clipping was of another police sketch, this one from the Seattle Times. I didn't read the Times regularly and hadn't seen the sketch before. Underneath the picture, my friend had underlined the name Ted doesn't your Ted have a VW, he said in a joking way. But not metallic, I said. The drawing did look vaguely like Ted. I tried to laugh, but it stuck in my throat. I went back to my desk and stared at the clipping, then put it in the pocket of my backpack. I took it out several times to look at it and then put it back. I couldn't concentrate on my work. I watched the clock until it was time to go. I rode my bike home in a hurry, went straight to my photo albums and started pulling out pictures of Ted. The jawline was strikingly similar to the sketch. The little laugh lines under the eyes were the same, and there was a quality about Ted's eyes that I saw in the drawing. But there were discrepancies, too. The suspect had straight hair, 
Ted's was curly. Ma'am, the jawline, the little laugh lines. Stop romanticizing this bitch. You wrote this book in 1981, so stop. I took one of the photos in the sketch and headed for Angie's houseboat. I needed to talk. I stopped for a six-pack of beer, drove to the dock, and walked down the wooden planks. Angie let me in. What's wrong? You look awful. Angie, you've got to promise me that you'll never tell anyone about this. I think I'm going crazy. I shoved the newspaper clippings in the photo of Ted at her. She looked from one, and then the other, and then at me. So? I know I'm crazy, but I think they look a little alike. And then there's all those coincidences. It's just weird. Okay, she said. Stop saying you're crazy and weird. We'll talk. Where did you get this picture? What coincidences? When did you start thinking about this? I told her how I got the clipping and what it did to me. (laughs) Sorry. I listed the coincidences. The accent. The witnesses said the suspect had a British accent. You remember the first night we met Ted in the bar? We thought he was from back east because of the way he talks. The suspect wore expensive looking tennis clothes. And you know how Ted dresses in the best of everything. Just because he wears Adidas doesn't make him a murderer. Weren't you with him that Sunday? In the evening, but I spent the day by myself. I don't know. It's just the name, the Volkswagen, the cast, the expensive clothes. Cast? What does that have to do with Ted? Angie asked me. I took a long pull on my beer. It was beginning to take the edge off my anxiety. Do you remember me telling you about the plaster of Paris? She shook her head. Well, once, a couple of years ago, I was going through Ted's desk drawers while he was taking a bath. (laughs) Sorry. Girl, why? Oh my God. Just dump him. (laughs) I was going through Ted's drawers while he was taking a bath. You know how snoopy I am. And I found some plaster of Paris at the back of the drawer. I asked Ted about it, and he said he didn't know why, but he had taken it when he was working at the medical supply house. He said a person never could tell when he was going to break a leg, and we both laughed. Now I keep thinking about the cast the guy at the Lake Sammamish was wearing. What a perfect weapon it would make for clubbing someone over the head. Okay, bitch, first of all, going through his shit while he's taking a bath. One, if you don't trust him that much, fucking dump him. Two... Not you guys joking, ha ha ha, you never know when someone's going to break a leg. I'm sorry, are either one of you hoes licensed medical professionals? You know how to fucking reset a broken bone, let alone a leg? Plaster of Paris. Like, and she just took him for face value. She was just like, okay, ha ha ha, funny joke there. That still doesn't answer the fucking question of why this bitch had it. Like, Liz, 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 Liz. She continues. Oh, please, Angie said, rolling her eyes. You're forgetting a few things. The Volkswagen in the news is metallic bronze. Ted's is hardly metallic. That was true. The tan paint on his VW had weathered and looked sort of dull. Besides, she went on, if he was going to abduct someone, would he stroll up and introduce himself by his real name? Liz, you don't go with someone for four years and not know what they're about. You know Ted. You know his morals. Unless there's something you're not telling me about, then I don't know why this has you so upset. Well, I have been thinking about his morals. You know the way he steals things. I've always made excuses for him, but when he's continued to rip things off even after he got those good jobs, well, I started to think there might be something more to it. Like maybe he enjoys getting away with the con. You're right, she said. The stealing is stupid but there's a big difference between stealing something and murdering someone. I struggled to maintain control. It's not so much the name or the car or the cast. It's this dreadful feeling I can't shake. I know it can't be true, but it hit me like a ton of bricks when I saw the picture. I can't figure it out. I can't think. I feel like my head's on backwards. Angie, you've got to help me. I grabbed her arm so hard that it scared her. Ma'am. The solution is that you prick up with someone if you think they're a murderer. Like, it's really fucking easy. Like, it's not like Liz thinks he's a cheater. She knows he's a cheater because she's caught him in the act. You know, she's found fucking women's underwear in his apartment when she was snooping. She thinks he might be a fucking murderer. Ma'am, ma'am, get it together. And for the sake of not just your safety, but the sake of your child. The safety of your fucking daughter. 
break up with this bitch and get him the fuck out of your life. He's not going to be a successful lawyer. Get that shit out of your head. You're still snatched. You're still young. Just go find someone fucking else. Like, come on. Your world does not revolve around Ted motherfucking Bundy. Ugh. So she carries on. Let me think, she said. Have you prayed about this? Sorry, Jesus would tell you the same thing. Drop this nigga. He's the devil. He's a demon. Drop this demon ass hoe. I nodded. Give me a minute. I can't think either. She sat quietly and I thought she was praying. So I looked out the window at the blue sky and the colorful houseboats. It seemed too nice a day for this, I thought. It seems to me, Angie started slowly, that you should call the police. I was shocked. I couldn't believe what she said. Could you imagine what Ted would do when he found out? Bitch, why are you shocked? You think he might be a fucking murderer. Call the police. Like, what the, why are you shocked? Also, how would Ted find out? Just don't fucking tell him, stupid. God, this is such a non-issue. I hate people making fucking problems out of shit that's not a problem. You think this nigga is a murderer? Call the cops. Period and done. Move on. Like the fuck? So her friend continues. She says, I mean, call them anonymously. I'm sure you're wrong, but how else are you going to get rid of that feeling? How long are you willing to feel the way you do? We began thinking of questions to ask the police. Our first question was whether the VW was positively metallic in color. That could rule Ted out right away. Then we decided to ask if their Ted had a cold. What? Or if he wore a watch on his right wrist. My Ted was left-handed and always wore his watch on his right wrist. Ma'am, ma'am, okay. Watches can be taken off. If this is your, like, your got him, he wasn't wearing a fucking watch or it was on the, like, watches can be switched around. You don't think he would try to, con- like, oh my God, why? This is so stupid. Stop trying to play fucking detective. It's not your job to ask cops questions. They ask you that. Like, give them the information. They'll suss out whether it's right or not and move on. Like, you're not Nancy Drew, clearly, because you're dating a fucking serial killer. <sighs> We couldn't call from Angie's. There was a chance the police would be tracing all the calls that came in about the case. We got in my car and drove to a phone booth in a supermarket parking lot near Green Lake. We knew that the police had set up a TED hotline, but how were we going to get the number? Call information? Hello, information. I want the number so I can call to find out if my boyfriend's a murderer. If you have to wonder, dump him. It shouldn't even be an option. We sat in the car looking at the empty phone booth. I found a dime. Angie had to get up her nerve to get out of the car. Angie's such a fucking good friend. She had to practice what she was going to say. She had never called the police in her life, not about anything. I sat in the car while she phoned. For me, it was like being on hold. I don't know if it was a long time or a short time, but she was back in the car and I was asking her questions as fast as I could. What did they say? What did you say? Did they ask your name? He told me that all the reports about the VW were that it was metallic. No reports mentioned a cold, she said. What about the watch? She had been so rattled she forgot to ask about the watch. Because it's a stupid fucking question, Liz. That's why she didn't ask about a goddamn watch that he could take off his wrist. God. I told her to go back and call again. No way, she said. They'll know it's me. You do it. It's easy. They don't want to know who you are or who you're calling about. Which, exactly, this is your fucking problem. Stop pushing in other people. This is 100% a Liz problem. Not Angie's. Stop taking advantage of your fucking friend who was probably just trying to enjoy her fucking night on her goddamn houseboat. You showed up with this bullshit. So she says, she was right. I had to do it myself. And it was as easy as she said. I got the number again from information. I asked the policeman if the suspect had a watch on his right arm. He said that none of the witnesses had mentioned anything about a watch. We had done it. I drove out of the parking lot without any idea where I was going. After a few blocks, I pulled over and parked. I opened another beer. She's driving. Google. It was illegal to drink and drive back then. And she's doing it. Suddenly, Angie looked at me and laughed. Do you realize what you're doing? She asked. You're sitting in front of the Mormon church drinking a beer. Ho ho. I laughed too. I needed some comic relief. With my luck, the bishop would stroll by. We went to the university library to read all the newspaper stories and learn everything we could about the disappearances. One story described Ted as five foot six or five foot seven, several inches shorter than my Ted. The VW was described as metallic gold. Ted's was a dull brown. And there was no mention of a ski rack on the back. There was a different composite drawing too. 
It gave the suspect curly hair, but the resemblances to my Ted weren't there. The discrepancies were reassuring. It sounded like Ted, I said. All that stuff about the expensive tennis clothes, the white Adidas, the way he talks, the business about asking for help with his sailboat. Ted is always talking about when he'll own a sailboat, but that doesn't look like him at all. Okay, so the one thing that she's hanging on, that's the one thing she's hanging on, that the composite isn't that accurate. But everything else, the Volkswagen, the fact that his name is Ted, wearing all white, white Adidas, having his arm in a fucking cast and her seeing plaster, like all of this shit adds up. But I drove Angie home wondering what had gotten into me. Then I drove to Ted's place. I wanted to see that he was the same Ted that I knew. So she thinks he might be a fucking murderer, so much so that she calls the police, goes and reads all of the newspapers she can get her hands on about the case, and then goes to his fucking house? You're not Sherlock fucking Holmes? You can't look at him and be like, oh, you know what? Actually, you're a murderer, which guess what? If you did look at him and suddenly realize he's the killer, what would you fucking do? You're in his house. My God. So she says, I was relieved to find him home. And he seemed glad to see me and the cold beer I bought on this hot summer night. I lay on the floor in his room. We drank beer and talked aimlessly about ordinary things. I found my eyes traveling over every detail of his room as if I was seeing it for the first time. I noticed a pair of crutches in the corner by the door. Ted said they belonged to his landlord and that he offered to return them to the rental agency. There was a big knife like a meat cleaver on his desk. Ted showed me how the knife was specifically designed to rock back and forth on its blade for dicing and mincing vegetables. I'm sorry, why was a cooking knife in his room? I'll tell you why. Because he used it to cut off his victim's heads and this bitch just sat there drinking beer on the floor. Like, I'm gonna lose my goddamn mind. I went home and Ted joined me later. He seldom spent the whole night anymore. But that night, we fell asleep next to each other after making love. (sighs) It like is so painful to read this book, I swear to God. <laughs> Apparently, Ted Bundy's ride or die Liz Kendall was not the only person to let it slip to the police that he might be a fucking serial killer. Shortly after the Lake Sammamish abductions, Detective Rob Keppel spoke with one of Ted Bundy's psychology professors at the University of Puget Sound, who said, and I shit you not, I have a weird guy in my class who drives a 1968 Volkswagen and who matches the composite drawing from your office. There were hundreds of names being phoned into the police, which is scary and concerning that hundreds of people were thought to be fucking serial killers. And since at the time, despite Ted Bundy being a peeping Tom, a kleptomaniac, a serial rapist and murderer, he had no criminal record. And also since he was a law student, like that shit comes up all the fucking time that he was a law student. So there's no way he could, he could possibly be killing people. He wasn't seen as a probable suspect, which fuck you. Someone's goddamn major or chosen profession does not abdicate them from being a shitty person. Stop putting these bitches on fucking pedestals. Like, God damn it. Like, also, I'm sorry, who codifies what's seen as a quote unquote good profession? Like, who the fuck are you to say that, you know, someone who's a sanitation worker is less than because they're not a lawyer or a doctor? Get the fuck out of here. Fucking sanitation workers have the best fucking union. They get bomb pay. Like, mm. So Liz says, I was leaving in a few days to spend a week with my family in Utah and bring Molly back. Ted asked me to find him an apartment in Salt Lake City. I did as he asked, but it seemed to me that I was doing the work of getting him set for law school without anything in it for me. I spent hours in Salt Lake City poring over the rental ads and trapezing up and down stairs of places with pink flamingos on the wallpaper. Finally, I found an apartment I knew that Ted would like in an old house in a neighborhood called The Avenues near the University of Utah. I called and told him about it. He was pleased. Not her calling the police because she thinks he's a serial killer one minute and then fucking pulling some HGTV shit the next. Like, ma'am, make up your mind. It's the flip-flopping inconsistencies for me. Okay. So, you know, Liz went to fucking Utah. I mean, granted her family's from there, but she went to Utah and while she was, instead of, you know, enjoying time with her family, she was looking for a fucking apartment for this bitch. She comes back and Ted meets her at the airport in Seattle. And she says, there he stood. I felt as if I had been hit in the stomach. All his curly hair was gone. 
It was the shortest haircut I had ever seen on him, and it changed his appearance drastically. I went through the motions of greeting and kissing him as though it were a dream. Molly thought the new haircut looked funny, and she told him so. Why did you do it, she asked. Because I just decided to, he said. Mama, you know why. You know why, and you're letting him around your daughter. Liz said, the newspapers, radio stations, and TV news were filled with speculations and stories and pictures and rumors about the Ted case. There was no way to escape it. For my morning coffee break on August 8th, also, sorry, her recall of these dates are so precise, like, did she keep a journal? But for my morning coffee break on August 8th, I took my cup of coffee and morning paper out into the sun, and what I read chilled me. The story was headlined, UW Coed's Encounter with a Man Like Ted. A young female student had been walking in front of the Beta, Beta, Theta, Pi, whatever, fucking sorority fraternity house at 1230 on June 11th, the night Georgian Hawkins had disappeared, when she encountered a man on crutches carrying a briefcase. He was having a lot of trouble and dropping the briefcase every few steps. I had seen crutches in Ted's room. I dragged myself back to my office, terrified. I had to call Angie, but I could barely talk. I told her about the crutches and about the story in the paper. There's only one thing you can do, she said. You better call the police. <laughs> you better call the police. <laughs> I knew she was right. So this is Liz's second time calling the cops thinking her boyfriend might be a murderer. Ma'am, you get one time to do this. Break up with him. Get him out of your life. Trust your gut feeling that this bum bitch is a serial killer. Like question for you and please if you have an actual answer for this please let me know how many times have you called the police on someone because you think they might be a fucking serial killer hmm? i can tell you for me fucking zero so there you go and i plan to keep it that way like did it never occur to her once to break up with this person who is abducting women raping them like make it make sense could not have been me Liz says, I went out to a payphone and looked up the number of the Seattle Police Department's homicide unit. I was trying not to cry. I asked to speak with someone who was familiar with the Ted case, and when the officer who answered said that he was, I poured out one long, scary sentence about being worried about my boyfriend, that he might be involved, that he sort of matched the descriptions, and that I had seen crutches in his room. What's your boyfriend's name? The officer asked. I can't tell you, I answered. I'm not sure he's involved. I'm just worried. Some things fit. Some things don't. I, I can't talk to you over the phone, the officer said. You need to come in and fill out a report. We're too busy to talk to girlfriends over the phone. How do you think we can... I hung up on him. I sat in the phone booth and prayed. I don't know what you want me to do, God. Please help me. Bitch, I'm sorry, but you know what to do. You don't gotta drag Jesus up into your bullshit. Break up with this unfaithful bitch-ass nigga and get him away from your child. Also, how do you expect the police to confirm whether or not he's involved if you don't Give him Ted Bundy's name. So, of course, she doesn't do that. Instead, she says, I went back to watching and waiting, spending my days thinking, trying to find some end to the thoughts in my head, spending my nights drinking to shut down my mind. Okay, I feel really fucking sorry for her because this whole Ted Bundy situation is not helping her alcohol dependency and it's making her fucking spiral and this sucks and I really wish that she had like at the time the mental wherewithal or strength or I don't know, just some sort of better support system. Like she doesn't indicate that her friends are aware that she is an alcoholic. I mean, she hadn't even admitted it to herself. So I doubt anyone in her life was aware, but she also is battling alcoholism. So that of course, of course, has a major fucking impact in how she is making these choices and how she's, you know, literally not thinking rationally. She's addicted to alcohol. So she is now sober. So there is, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, in her book at the end, she has like a little a 2020 update, literally written in 2020. And she's been sober for many, many years. So fuck yes, Liz, for finding your sobriety. So unfortunately for Ted Bundy, yet fortunately for the rest of us, the professor's call, Liz's call, and an anonymous phone call made to the police in July, giving them the license number and make of Ted Bundy's car, automatically placed him on a special list as one of their top 100 suspects for further investigation. Liz says, one night in August, Ted called from his parents' house in Tacoma. He was crying and his words came out slowly. He told me he had been driving near a shopping center in Tacoma and he had seen the police chase a man down the street. 
He was like an animal, Ted said. He ran and ran with the police chasing them in their car. And when they caught him, he urinated all over himself. I wondered what he was trying to tell me. But when I tried to get him to tell me more about it, he changed the subject and started talking about the budget he was working on. I had to take what he told me at face value. Sorry, no, you don't. I had to tell, I had to take what he told me at face value. Nothing else made sense. I was almost sure that I lost control of my thinking, that there was something seriously wrong with my mind, or it was all part of the pain of Ted's leaving me. Finally, I began to look forward to his departure to Utah hoping that once he was gone, all these weird thoughts would depart too. Mama, they're not weird. They're actually rational. And the fact that Liz is just like gaslighting the fuck out of herself is so upsetting. Like, mama, trust your fucking gut. Don't trust this bum bitch. She says, I still spent time with Ted. She called the cops on him twice, but she still spent time on him. Okay. We were doing all of our favorite things one last time. We went to our favorite tavern, the Deluxe, which was famous for its bargain steak dinners. We went to visit his parents together, and I wondered if it was the last time I would see them. One day, Ted took my car to Olympia because he was out of gas. He gave me his Chevron credit card and asked me to fill up his car when I got the time. While the service station attendant was filling up the tank, I noticed a thick bunch of gas receipts over the visor. Feeling like a burglar, I pulled them down and went through them one by one. They were all from the area, and with shaking hands, I put them back where I found them. I decided to search his room next. The next afternoon, I called Ted at his office in Olympia to make sure he was there and went straight to his room. Sometimes he left his room unlocked and sometimes he locked it and left the key in the doorframe. This time it was locked and I couldn't find the key. I had to ask his landlord to let me in. I told him I was there to help Ted pack, but I beamed a silent message to him. Don't tell Ted I was here. There were already cardboard boxes there packed on the floor. I started digging into them. I found more gas receipts and went through them. Nothing out of the ordinary. I found a film canister which was heavily taped with electrician's tape. I was tempted to take it but didn't dare. He might notice it was gone. Okay, pause. Ted Bundy admitted that he did take pictures of his victims, like when they were dead. That's probably what was in there. I have no idea what happened to that film canister. He probably destroyed it. Also, he kept the heads of four of his victims in his apartment, like in the walls. So not sure about the smell, not sure if they were there at the time she broke into his room, just fucking saying. Also, I'm happy she did check to make sure he was at work, but mama, you really want to break into someone's room who you think is a serial killer? Make better choices. You have a daughter. Sorry, but you have someone who is a child who is dependent upon you. Like, come on. Do you think she would be able to handle her mom getting fucking serial killed? But again, alcoholism, not making rational choices. So we we forgive, we forgive. I found an eyeglass case full of every kind of key I could imagine. Did he break into houses with them? That was different from shoplifting. I found his canceled checks. I pawned through a couple of months, not knowing what I was looking for, getting frightened as if Ted might burst in on me at any moment. When I couldn't stand it any longer, I grabbed a full envelope of canceled checks for the month of May, 1974 and fled. Later that night at home, I went through them. There were two that caught my attention. One for a rental outfit, the other to a surplus store. The next day, I called the rental company. I'm sorry, she's doing too much. I called the rental company and told them I was balancing my checkbook and asked if they could help me identify a check. The man said they didn't keep records for that sort of thing. Angie was worried about where this obsession was taking me, so I tried not to tell her about it as much. When you have to start hiding things from your best friend, that is not a good sign. It just simply is not. So Ted Bundy is now getting ready to flee the state of Washington because he has racked up a body count of eight that we know of. The case is getting hot because this dumb bitch gave, you know, people who got away the name Ted, showed the Volkswagen, like, you know. So he's going to the University of Utah Law School, not because of great aesthetic, but because he wants different killing grounds. And the Sunday before he was supposed to leave, Liz and her daughter went to his apartment. Again, why the fuck would you bring your daughter if you think this bitch is a killer? But whatever, they went there to help him with his work, like his actual work, because he was behind. And this piece of shit needed a woman to help him because of course. So she says, I sat down at the typewriter while Ted paced up and down behind me dictating. It was a long day. Ted was way behind in work and his deadline was Monday. 
which is the next day. This was the only Ted I knew, I thought. Everyone else thought he was so well organized, but I had spent years helping him out of last minute jams just like this. He had always waited until the last possible moment to write papers and then showed up at my office and asked me to drop everything and type them. He took incompletes in many of his classes and had to make up the work later. Today was typical. It was midnight when we finished, and he left his budget on his boss's desk tied with a big red ribbon. So I actually can relate to this. When I was in high school, I dated a real treat of a person. Um, I'm being facetious. He was fucking garbage, and I don't care if people go back and tell this person this. Like, you're a fucking piece of shit, garbage human being. I said what I motherfucking said. I have receipts. Anyway, and this bitch um, would call me last minute literally like Ted Bundy and be like oh I didn't write my whatever history paper or my whatever the fuck English paper can you help me because I'm a really good writer I'm literally a writer and he would literally try to get me to drop fucking everything and I remember like I did help him like one or two times I do remember but I didn't drop everything I was just like all right fine I'll help you but then one time he was like oh my god I need help and I was like okay well I'm doing my own homework so figure it out and he's like what you're not gonna help me then I'm gonna fail and I was like okay, that sounds like a you problem. I'm literally doing my own homework. You waiting to the last possible minute to do your essay is not my problem. Figure it out. And listen, if you have people in your life who do this type of shit, dump their problems on you last minute and expect you to drop fucking everything to help them and then get mad at you when you don't, they are trash people and you need to set up a boundary with them to stop. And if they don't like this boundary, then that means they love taking advantage of you when that boundary wasn't there. Stop these trash people. They need to fucking figure out how to deal with this shit by themselves. Stop holding their motherfucking hands and let them, you know, figure it out by themselves because these bitches will never grow up and stop letting them take advantage of you. No, 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 no. Don't do free labor for a bum ass bitch. Anyway, so apparently Andy cooks this big going away breakfast for Ted on her houseboat on Labor Day. Mind you, she was there for the whole calling the cops thing. Uh, he claims he's going to miss Seattle, but he's glad to start fresh in Utah. And, you know, he's convinced he can finally concentrate on getting his law degree because of the aesthetic. <laughs> he, Liz says, tickled Molly one last time, Ugh. gave Angie a hug, and then turned to me. We held each other for a long time, then kissed goodbye. Ted waved and honked as he drove off, his Boston fern beside him in the front seat. And now it gets dark, 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 dark. So Ted leaves Seattle on Labor Day, September 2nd. And Liz said, Ted called me from Nampa, Idaho to tell me he loved me. We had a picnic there on one of our trips to Utah. He called me again from outside Salt Lake City to tell me where he was. And he called me from his apartment to tell me how much he loved the place I found for him. So that phone call to Liz, where he's like, I love you. Mm. We had a picnic here. Mm. Remember the memories? Mm." happened either right before or right after he fucking killed someone else. Yeah, this bitch killed a hitchhiker. And Kevin Sullivan recounts it in his book, The Bundy Murders, and it's graphic and it's dark and I apologize, okay? So it was like right on the outskirts of Boise, Ted Bundy remembered that he spotted a young woman with a green backpack hitchhiking at the top of the ramp on the freeway. It was early evening and he pulled over, he has all of his shit in his car for his move and he waved the young lady over he smiled and whatever he's attractive and she didn't sense any fear and got in the car she's hitchhiking and they drove for the next like three to four hours with him in the car like some small chit chat but the highway they were on i-84 was under construction and ran right alongside a river and so it had all these like little divots of just like unfinished road that he could pull off on and he had been eyeing this body of water the entire time they talked and he used some pretense as to why he had to pull over but then the second he did he grabbed a crowbar from underneath the passenger seat and hit her in the head. She was alive but unconscious. He stopped the car, dragged her body to a spot like a little bit away from the car, <sighs> removed her clothes, sexually assaulted her, and then, and I'm sorry, this is dark, feel free to skip ahead right now, okay? He strangled her to death while he sodomized her. And before he left, he most likely had sex with her dead body a couple of more times. He admitted that he put her body in the water with all of her clothing, and when questioned by investigators 14 years later, Ted Bundy said that after killing this hitchhiker, he burned her ID and he could no longer recall her name. He estimated she was between 16 and 18 years old and said she had light brown hair and possibly lived in Boise and may have had Wyoming as her destination. 
The backpack, he said, didn't go into the river like everything else. No, no, no. He says, I don't know, it was 14 years ago. I, you know, he either dumped it out of his car off the window or maybe he brought it with him to Salt Lake City. No one knows. <sighs> and so Ted Bundy gets to fucking Utah where eight women are murdered in Seattle that we know of. And this bitch is like, deuces, I'm in Utah now. And let me just say, he doesn't, he doesn't reform. He doesn't find the Mormon Jesus and, and change his ways. No, this bitch keeps fucking going. Pew, 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 pew. <sighs> I know, I know it's not great, but thank you so much for listening to True Crime Aficionados. I love you so much. If you have any questions, you can shoot me an email at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. You can check out the Instagram at truecrimeaficionados. Your girl is now on TikTok at Misha Iman. It's actually not true crime related. I actually wanted to separate that part of my life. And it's more just good vibes, my coffee, my plant, my kitten. It's a bit of a, a social media palette cleanser, I would like to say. My sources will be linked below. Photos from this episode will be on the Instagram, like pictures of his car, the lake, all that jazz. And please stay tuned and listen for a delicious little purr from my kitten Mimi because it's such a wonderful palate cleanser and she is a very purry kitten. Every purr you hear is newly recorded. I don't reuse her purrs at all. And stay tuned next week for episode seven where one of his burial grounds, his dump sites, is found so these women are no longer missing they have now been confirmed to be murdered liz does not stop calling the police but she also doesn't break up with ted bundy it just it's a treat so stay tuned please be sure to like rate subscribe review share all that jazz and i love you and thank you and please remember keep your head on the swivel bye <laughs>